You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dana Hunsiger Benbow, and she is a sports writer for the Indianapolis Star. And she's more than that. She is the premier sports journalist in this market, in the opinion of Leaders and Legends. And she, what she does so well is she satisfies and she feeds, and this is one of the questions I'm going to ask you later, are, are Hoosier's insatiable appetite for nostalgia. So if you want to feel good about yourself, you want to feel good about Indiana, then make sure you read Dana's columns in the Indianapolis Star. Dana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You are, as I look through your your biography and, and through the conversations we've had uh, during the years we've known each other, a Hoosier through and through. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Yep. I was born and raised in Greenfield, Indiana, which is on the east side of Indianapolis. I got my writing start um, when my mom and dad gave me Willie Nelson's On the Road Again. It was like the single record, actually, the vinyl. And I was like five years old and they got me a Fisher's Price record player and I played it and I was like, he keeps saying the same thing over and over, you know, on the road again. So I actually rewrote Willie Nelson's classic when I was like five and tried to add other song, like other verses in. And so, of course, my mom bragged on me. And from there, I was like, well, then I, I should write. And so um, that's how I got my writing start. And then uh sports wise my dad grew up in the era of the Yankees winning what like in one decade they won like nine world series or something and so I grew up watching uh, Yankees with him and then the Celtics I 
He loved them. On Sunday afternoons, we would watch the NBA. Dennis Johnson and Casey Jones was the coach. Kevin McHale, that team. And um, so, yeah, I mean, my dad just gave me my love of sports. And then so that's kind of why I love the historical kind of sports stories. They're my very favorite. Well, your uh, columns, your stories are are must read for those of us who, like you, spent I've basically spent all of my life in Indiana, except for the three years I was in the army. And we love to look back and I'm going to ask you about some of those stories. Some of them have to be fun to write and some of them have to be tough to write. Um, yeah. But you mentioned your love of writing. What, what made you matriculate into journalism as opposed to another way to make your living through the written word? You know, when, well, I really kind of liked radio. And so my friend and I would get together, like after the Lakers games, you know, with the Celtics and we would get our cassette tape out and pretend like we were sports radio announcers when we were in elementary school. And so I always loved like the, then it was like the next day breaking news. Now it's 24 hour cycle, but I love the idea of like writing something that people had to read, you know, like a book or whatever, but like breaking news or sports news, you know, I felt like people, you know, would, that was something they had to read. And, and I went to ball state and started, well, I went to Butler first and then went over to ball state and started taking journalism classes there. And I just loved it. And my professor there was the first woman sports writer at the star. She covered, her name was Debbie Reed. She's still alive. And I still talk to her, but I made her sound like she was in the past tense and she's not, but she was, she was there when the Colts moved to Indy in 84 and she like covered that. And so here was this like woman who had been this legend kind of writing sports. And so, um, yeah, that was always my dream. Now, Ball State is is famous for producing uh, journalists and it's, it's terrific journalism school. Were you at Ball State with, Anyone who's currently working in the Indianapolis market or any names we would necessarily know? We like to ask these questions of people when they attend colleges, whether it's Harvard or IU or Purdue, <laughs> Notre Dame. Uh, I'm 47. So Letterman had left. Um, Jim Davis was gone, but, you know, Garfield's creator. I'm trying to think. I can't think of anyone famous that was there when I was there. Just me, I guess. Who's not famous? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Except for in my mind. <laughs> okay, but you also went to great. Did you go to Greenfield Central High School? Yep, Greenfield Central High School. So you are at least the third Greenfield Central alum to have appeared on the podcast with uh, who, joining, excuse me, Michael O'Connor, former chief <gasps> of staff to Bart Peterson. Yep. And now works at Lilly and Dave Arland who used to work at WIBC and was press secretary for Bill Hudnut and went and worked for Thompson or slash RCA now has his own PR gig. Uh, he came on to talk about the legacy of Bill Hudnut. So you are number three. We've had several Harvard grads actually. And so we're oh keeping gosh. count. We're keeping count of all the important alums. Did you go to ball yeah. state because go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think Dr. O'Connor in Greenfield, uh, he's my parents' doctor. I think he's brother to that O'Connor, I, I think. But that's neither here nor there. Did you, do you know, Mike? I mean, do you know that you guys went to the same high school or Arlen? You and Arlen have, you and Dave Arlen have a several uh, uh, of the same sort of background. 
Yeah, I know of Dave Arlen for sure. I don't know O'Connor. Poor Michael. Wait till I tell him. <laughs> what made you decide to go to Butler in the first place and then switch? Did you have a career change in mind? Um, I played tennis. And so um, I got a spot on the tennis team there. And um, so I went there and ended up not finishing playing tennis. And my dad was helping out, you know, I had a scholar, I had like an academic scholarship there. And then when I decided I wasn't going to play tennis and that I didn't really want to do psychology, which is what I went into because I, there wasn't really a big journalism thing there. I was like, I really want to do journalism. And he said, you know, a state school would be a lot cheaper for me than a, than a public or a private school. So since he was paying, I transferred over to Ball State for journalism, which of course has a great program. We are big tennis fans here at the Leaders and Legends podcast. We actually had one of our previous guests was John Wertheim who is the, the tennis is executive editor of sports illustrated. He's also their tennis writer and uh, born in Bloomington. And we talked a lot about tennis when we had our interview with John, who did you admire growing up? Tennis is such a wonderful game. I play racquetball incessantly, mostly because I was never any good at tennis, but who did you admire as a tennis player? What drove you to that game? Cause I know you played volleyball as well. Yeah. Um, Tennis. Well, I was obsessed with Pete Sampras. Like that was, and during the whole Boris Becker, Pete Sampras, all those days. Um, and then I loved Monica Sellis, who of course grunted every time she hit the ball. Uh, my dad, <laughs> my dad would always just go with me on the weekends, and we go to like a high school court and just play tennis. And I just loved it. And so my fresh, I didn't even start till my freshman year of high school, and I was just like, I'm gonna try this. And so, um, I just fell in love with it and I always played singles. I never, I never was any good at doubles. Like I, I, I could, for some reason, couldn't grasp it. Um, but yeah. And so once I got to Butler and I walked on to Butler's, well, he came out to North central, the coach did during the summer after my senior year and, and I didn't get a scholarship or anything, but he had me be a walk-on player. Um, and so I did that and I played volleyball in high school never was good enough to do that in college or anything. Um, played oboe in the band, piccolo in the marching band, because you don't do oboe in the marching band. So do you I had still play tennis? Do you still play the oboe? I don't play the oboe. I rarely play tennis. I'm very into sand vol- beach volleyball. So I play twos beach volleyball. Here, here in Indianapolis, I know there's, a, yeah. there's, there's some courts I've saw, I've seen some on the South side. Yeah, actually, um, the two new courts indoor just opened this year. So I've been even able to play in the winter. There's one in Greenfield out by the Mount Comfort exit. And then there's one, I think in Westfield. And so they're having leagues and things like that. Um, so you can play sand volleyball in the winter in Indiana. <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Are there like leagues and everything? Anyone can go watch or you just sign up and play or how, how organized is it? Because, you know, I have to confess stand volleyball isn't something <laughs> I associate with Mount comfort exit. I know. I know it's very organized. They have right now I'm playing in a Cali style league on Wednesday nights. And you basically, um, you have a partner and you just go and you just play per point and, like they'll have a winner. It's like an eight week session and then they'll have the tournament. Um, 
but mostly I do doubles or like the Cali doubles. There's also fours, sixes. The sixes we always joke are literally people can stand on the court and drink beer while they play. <laughs> like they're not exactly, moving. you know, yeah, they're not really moving. <laughs> well, let's, let's merge something. It's a little bit premature in the interview because I wanted to ask you about this later, but since you just mentioned it, uh, one of the things that I miss most about Indianapolis and the, and the culture and the events, this is way pre COVID is when we lost the tennis tournament that was here, which was absolutely, yeah. absolutely fabulous. We've talked to Mark Miles about it, who used to be head of the ATP. Uh, but did you ever cover that or attend it? Or kind of what, have your, what are your memories of that tennis tournament, the RCA championships, if you have any? Which And I believe that tournament was voted the favorite tournament of the players like 10, 12 years in a row. Yeah, I never got to cover that because I just came onto sports about seven years ago. But I was an intern at AUL, which is now One America downtown, and they were a huge sponsor of the tournament. And so one whole summer, I spent my entire summer like getting our sponsorship. Like we put on the big gala the night before. And so I got to be super involved in it one year. And it was, I mean, literally. Yeah. Like, you know, it was the coolest event. I mean, it was just crazy and it was so just magical. And I don't even know why, what happened to that? I don't even know. Cincinnati ate it. Okay. The Cincinnati tournament is, was, is an ATP 1000 masters event. And it got to be so huge uh, that it has, you know, men and women. I mean, the top men, the top women, and you just couldn't justify an Indianapolis tournament that close to it. Now, I was in the mayor's office working for Mayor Ballard when the tournament died, and we tried hard to keep it. But Cincinnati has an, has, is an underappreciated uh, corporate base. They have a several. They have a lot of money down there, and they bankrolled the tournament. And the, the tournament's right across the street from Kings Island. And so that's kind of how it went away. You mentioned your love for Pete Sampson, Sampras. He was here several times. Did you get to meet him? No, I never got to meet him. I was in the audience one time when he took questions and some girl shouted out, will you marry me? Was that you, Dana? <laughs> okay, maybe I did get to yell something at him one time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember my mom hated him and she would always be like, oh, Dana. Like, why, why would you like, I don't know. She was, she didn't, she thought he was arrogant. And I was like, if you're that good, you know, you can't be that good without a little cocky. You got to be I think he was arrogant. more quiet than anything else, as opposed to Agassiz, who was loud and wore a wig. Oh, yeah, Agassiz, I forgot. You're wore, bringing back, yeah. <laughs> wore stonewashed shorts. <laughs> stonewashed jean shorts. Um <laughs> <laughs> was your first job out of Ball State, was it at Noblesville? Or tell us how you matriculated yes. eventually to the star. Yeah, my first job out of Ball State, I worked for the now defunct Noblesville Daily Ledger, and I covered government. And so I would go, pretty much my job was, you know, uh, county, I kind of covered county. So it was county commissioner meetings, council meetings um, every night. And then it was before, and it's why I got into journalism there was no websites. It was 1997. Newspapers didn't have websites. So you would come back from the meeting. You'd sit in a dark newsroom, write the story. And this ha we were happened to be an afternoon paper. 
but our deadlines of course had to be in by the next morning. So you would write that and then it would break like in the afternoon. And it was just a thrill, like to, you know, to pick up the real paper and see your story on the front page. So I did that a year and then was going kind of head to head against the star guy who covered Hamilton County government and his editor, um, she called me up and she was like, I noticed you're beating our writer, like at a lot of stories. And so she said, would I want to be interested in coming in for an interview? So within a year, I was at the star covering education. Um, again, a lot of like night school board meetings. And then I moved on a year later to the business desk and I stayed there a year and covered uh, Simon Property Group, all the Fortune 500 companies, Finish Line, all the public companies that were in Indy, retail, um, real estate development. So it was just, you know, lots and lots of no meet, not as many meetings, but just a lot of, you know, earnings reports and scouring all of that stuff, which has kind of helped, believe it or not, in some of the stuff I do for sports, just because of I do a lot of financial, you know, NCAA, kind of some of the more, I don't know, people would call it boring, but the, you know, the nitty gritty runnings of sports, um, just did Lucas oil. You know, I ran through all, I got their financial reports during 2020 and ran through how much they lost due to COVID. And so I still use it a little bit. Um, but then once out of the business desk for 10 years, I moved over to fitness and I tried out all kinds of sports and workouts and wrote about those. And that's kind of how I translated into sports because Andrew Luck was doing something and it was his year after his rookie season, I believe. And some fitness company asked if I would be willing to interview him about some product. And so I got a one-on-one sit down with Andrew Luck and it was like an hour in the Colts press room, just me and him. And from there, I just kind of moved over to the sports desk and I love it. Like I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't move for anything. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Dana Hunsinger Benbow, sports writer for the Indianapolis Star. I guess I got to ask the question, how the hell did you beat out John Tui to be this fitness writer for the Indianapolis star? <laughs> he cusses too much. Have you heard his mouth? <laughs> uh, you think I, I, you think I haven't been interviewed by him? Is, is his nickname still John F and Tui? <laughs> yes. He would be cussing. Like they did videos of me working out. He would be, it would be X rated videos if he had to try to work out. Oh my he's one, gosh. He's amazing. He's one of my favorites. <laughs> Yeah. So fun to work with. If you can understand him like John, turn up the volume on your phone. It's all the way up. That's great. Do you look back at the days of some of the beats you've had? And quite frankly, they're just gone. It has to be somewhat wistful for you to look back and go, God, I mean, at one time the star had a fitness writer or you know, multiple people working in the business section. Is that just kind of tough? Oh my gosh. It is so hard. I remember when I first got there, we had, I think 250 people in the newsroom and I'm not sure what the number is now, but I know it's in the dozens. Um, and like on the business desk, there were 12 business writers and yeah, we don't have fitness. We don't, I mean, it, it's so sad, but it's just, a. I mean, it's just one of those things that you, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, I worry about the industry every single day. I worry about, you know, will people still want 
to get their news this way or because a lot of people get it from, you know, Facebook because we can do metrics and Mm -hmm. people are just listening to other people tell their own news on Facebook and companies are coming up with telling their own stories. You know, like IU Health, they have a whole team that I actually wrote for for a year that basically tells the story of their hospitals and Riley and they get so much traction from people reading those. Um, so granted, they're, they're not necessarily unbiased because it's written by the company. But sometimes people really don't unsadly care about that. So just the 24-hour news cycle, the social media, it's just changed everything. And like I said, I didn't get into journalism to break news on Twitter. Like I, I wouldn't have even thought of that. Um, so it's very, very sad for me. Is that, is that the, the love hate relationship that so many journalists in particular sports journalists have with Twitter? What, what do you like about it? And what do you loathe about it? I like Twitter. It's definitely, I think a place where most people, you know, break their news or get their news. And I like that I, that you can do that. And, and it tends to do, you know, pretty well and reach a lot of people. However, I mean, it's, you know, you know how it is. There's never, you can post anything. Like I followed Chase and Sadie Smith for a year. Um, They were elite athletes. Chase was an elite swimmer. Sadie's at IUPUI right now, diving division one, doing wonderful. And, you know, he had terminal cancer. They got married as high school sweethearts. And there was nothing not to think was sweet about the story, really. And I, even with that, I got hate mail and people will find any reason to, you know, come back at you. And I don't, I don't know what it is about that. Okay, so what is it? What I mean, let's ask about that just a little bit. What did they find so terrible about it? Just that you were don't you were devoting so much time to yep. it? Like, why this there guy was, and why not my son or why not other people or why not other stories? Cover the Colts. Yeah, yeah, like more why you're you're just inundating us with you know, inundating us with this story of these two people. And I'm sick of hearing about it and I'm sick of it. And they were very Christian couple and there was no way to tell their story without including that. It would not have been an authentic story unless their faith was included in it, because every time you talk to them, that's what they talked about. And that was how he dealt with his terminal illness. And he, he died in April of 2021, but even up until the very end, I mean, And so people were very negative about, you know, mentioning his faith. Um, But if you hadn't mentioned his faith, then there would have been a whole other side of people who knew him, who said that you were, you know, being withholding his faith. And it just, I feel like there's, I just feel like it's a very vindictive platform. I, I don't, I don't get that with Facebook or Instagram or any of that. I don't know anything about Snapchat other than my teenage sons have it. So I don't use that, but I just feel like, I, do you feel that way? Like Twitter is kind of a mean spirited platform. Well, I, I finally deleted my Facebook account about mm, two months ago, just because it wasn't working for me and for, mm-hmm. for various reasons. And 
I'm, I don't miss it like at all, like not yeah. at all. Twitter is a little different because, you know, as has been documented on the podcast, my favorite football team is the Miami Dolphins. They've been my favorite football team since Super Bowl six, 1970. Why? Uh, why are they my favorite team? Yeah. If you grew up in Indiana, why? Well, when I was, I was born in 67, so we didn't have a team till 84. Right. So the Dolphins in the early seventies were winning Super Bowls and going undefeated. <laughs> and so, you know, like so many people who are still bears fans in this market, despite the Colts, uh, I just, <laughs> I just stuck with them as a kid. And then we draft Dan Marino and you think, hell, you're going to keep winning. And that hasn't worked out. So, you know, <laughs> there's something to be said for, uh, something to be said for loyalty, but yeah. I, I, I've, I'm on Twitter, a lot of it, because I follow sports writers, you know, for my team and a lot of, of history accounts. So I find Twitter, Twitter, it's easier because you don't see all the comments immediately like you do on Facebook. Twitter, it's easier for me to ignore that or just not mm -hmm. engage. But as a reporter, and I'm lousy with social media as a, as a PR professional, which I guess I kind of am. I'm lousy with social media. And if Chris Spangle could, well, I guess he could interject with a hearty laugh right now, if he wanted to, he would second that. Uh, but as a, as a journalist, do you have to have a Twitter account? Like does the editor or does Ms. Green or someone say, look, I know you hate it, but you got to have one. Or can you just chuck it and go, I'm not putting myself through this. You know, we don't have like a mandate. However, um, it would be probably not very smart not to have a Twitter account just due to the fact that, you know, that's where people are getting their news. And if you don't post your stories on Twitter, not very many people are going, I mean, people are, but you know, they're not going, Hey, indiestarter.com, Let me pull up that website and see what stories there. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're coming right. to the website because someone posted a story. So yeah, I mean, I, I think the best bet, and I am not good at social media either. I don't respond to anything negative ever. And I definitely don't talk negative on Twitter, but I also don't do a good job of engaging enough. So I'm pretty bad at it too. I pretty much like post stories there and then just hope they take off. So, <laughs> you know, like the Greg Doyles of the world, he is in there. I mean, he is talking nonstop and that's why he has a hundred thousand followers probably. So I was going to ask you about that. I see Greg at the gym from time to time down in Southport when I'm playing racquetball, he's usually in there boxing around somewhat. It's always yeah. fun to we usually have a kind of perfunctory two or three minute conversation with, I, when I see him, he's very engaging, obviously. Uh, do you ever compare social media horror stories? Because because what he does is opinion driven. So yeah. he automatically is going to elicit responses pro or con based on what he writes. Yeah. And that's the beauty that I have. Like I don't write opinions. So if anyone does rip, I can say, well, that's the, that is what that person said or that, you know, there it's factual based not any of my opinion is inserted. And with him, I mean, that's all it is. And so, yeah, he, I don't know how he does it. I've, I mean, I know when he goes on vacation, sometimes he literally doesn't check Twitter for six days. He just stays completely off of it just to take a break. But um, all of us in the newsroom, I mean, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the way the reaction you get on Twitter. And um, 
I'm trying to think if I have any terrible horror stories. I don't, well, I mean, I have a certain person right now who is going at me on Twitter, but that's nothing do you, new. Um, do you feel like they're like, like stalkerish or is it just, they're just unhinged because I have to admit, I, I couldn't tell you the number of times either on Facebook or Twitter, I have started to write a reply or a response and just deleted it and go, why am I doing this? Like, why? It doesn't matter. Like, I don't care. They don't care about me. I don't care about them. I disagree with them. That's fine. Move on to the next thing. That's actually one of the reasons why I got off Facebook is you, you tend to try to engage and then you realize that it's just meaningless. It's like winning an air guitar contest and calling yourself Jimi Hendrix. Right. And it's, and I do notice some of the meanest comments. If you click on a person's profile, either it's a fake account because there's maybe uh, seven followers or it is. <laughs> so I sometimes wonder if people just create accounts just to do, you know, just to kind of do that. And then that sure. leads me to the question, why would I care if they're that desperate that they have to create a fake account to make their life entertaining? Then why do you even care what they're saying? So I just try to I try to just stay away from the negative and focus on the positive. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is Dana Hunsinger Benbow. She is a writer for the Indianapolis Star. She is also married, has three teenage sons. That's a lot to juggle. And she has her own pet goat named Gus. Is <laughs> Gus is Gus on Twitter? He has an Instagram page, Gus the Glorious Goat. So you could you should follow him, although he only posts about once a month of that. But he was recently, Patty Spitler had him, him and I come downtown. This is hilarious. Um, she had him come down for Pet Pals TV, but I was going on the morning of the monumental marathon. So it was like I got I left really early because I didn't want to be late for live TV. And so I was early. So I went to a gas station, like to pump up my tires and there's a goat in my backseat. And I went to the gas and this guy like was in the, like at the gas tank next to me. And he goes, okay. He goes, hang on. He said, I am tripping on LSD. He said, but please tell me that I am not like seeing things like that really is a goat in the back of your car. And I was like, yes, it really is. a goat." (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, I got Gus. In October of 2020, he, his mother had died. I don't live on a farm. I do live on two acres, um, but his mother had died. And so he was six days old. And so the person was like, he'd need to be bottle fed. And so I bottle fed a goat inside my house until he was, now he doesn't come in the house. He absolutely can't because they just, they let loose. Like you can't potty train them, you know, so sure. they have to stay out. But um, but he's as much of a dog as a goat could be. He lives in the backyard with the golden retriever. I don't think he knows he's a goat because he's never been around a goat. So he thinks he's a dog. He eats meat, which is goats don't usually eat meat, but he eats pepperoni pizza or, I mean, he's, he is like the best goat in the whole entire world. And I wrote a children's book 
that has not yet been sent out, but it's ready. So I'm hoping to get a book published about him. What's the name of that Instagram account again? It's Gus the Glorious Goat. We are talking to uh, Dana Hunziger Bimbo for the Indianapolis Star. She's an award. And that's the name of my children's book. (laughs) All I can think of at the moment is the Andy Griffith show episode where the goat eats the dynamite. Have you seen that? (laughs) Yes. I love Andy Griffith. (laughs) Or the Green Acres. I think they had a wild goat on there too, but we're really aging ourselves. (laughs) That's, That's true. I have to admit, I probably watch... 10 to 15 episodes of the Andy Griffith show a month, at least. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say in your life and I was going to say, then don't talk to me because I've watched, (laughs) I've seen everyone probably 10 times each. My favorite episode is called the shoplifters. Which one's that? It's where the old lady is doing the shoplifting and Weaver store and Barney catches her, but then she pulls out the Bible. Have you not seen that one? It's called the shoplifters. Yes. Or the, my favorite is citizen's arrest when Barney, somebody starts <laughs> making a citizen arrest on Barney or something Gomer. in the truck. Yeah. Gomer <laughs> does for the U-turn yeah. and then they, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. and Barney calls uh, Gomer a boob, which I thought was pretty racy for the early 60s. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Did you I get to, not- I'd be absolutely a terrible podcast host if I didn't immediately say, did you ever get to talk to Jim Neighbors and tell him of your love for the uh, Andy Griffith show when he was here for the 500. I did get to talk to Jim neighbors and I told him my love of Gomer Pyle. Cause that was also my very, like well, that was what I grew up. I just loved Sergeant Carter, Gomer Pyle. I loved that show. So I, I didn't mention Andy Griffith, but I did tell him Gomer Pyle. Um, and I think that was the year before, I think it was the year before it was his last year to sing. So, and I think Florence Henderson was with him at the time. When I talk, I think I got, yeah, I got to talk to two greats at the same time. You you mentioned uh, playing team sports, for example, does that prepare you like volleyball or a sport like that? Does that prepare you, you think for an office environment, like a newsroom where everyone has to, you know, you have editors and you have fellow writers and photographers and y'all have to work together. Does does one helpful the other? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because you know, I, I mean, personally, people see the writer's byline, but they have no idea the layers of work that goes into a story from copy. I mean, you do because you're in the industry, but like, you know, we have copy editors, we have design studios, we have an editor, like if it's a controversial story, three or four editors might go through that. Um, there's stories where you work with another reporter on a, you know, and I've always liked working alone, but being on it. Yeah. Like being on a team, playing volleyball, you kind of learn to give and take and, you know, it's not all about you and you know, whose byline goes first. It makes you want to put the other person's byline first because you're trying to, you know, be a team player. And so, yeah, I think for sure, I think sports is pretty much good for any career. And I know if Chris doesn't really like sports or isn't a big into it, I mean, but I do think that it's, it does have lessons and it does have far reaching implications beyond the court and field, because you look at like just the, the cultural things that sports has done over the years, you know, with Jackie Robinson and well, the NCAA tournament, you know, 
started saying that it wouldn't have host cities unless they allowed, you know, same sex marriage or, you know, that kind of thing. And I feel like it, it kind of has paved the way for so much more than what just happens with the athletes on the field. Is that always a part of your mindset and your writing when you, when you cover a big event that crosses the lines with, with social issues that, you know, for example, um, major league baseball this year took the all-star game out of Atlanta in mm-hmm. protest of what they perceived to be a restrict voting laws. Mm-hmm. And then a few months later, the Atlanta Braves host the world series. Right. Didn't, 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 didn't they win it? So, you know, there was like, there's a lot of cheerleading and applauding for major league baseball when they took that stance. And then there was a lot of kind of guffawing and laughter from the other side when the Braves hosted the World Series, an even bigger right. event than the All-Star game. So is it tough for you to, because you're not an opinion writer, to, to straddle a line without alienating a certain group of people? Or is that just inherent in the gig? Um, it's probably, it is very difficult to straddle the line, but not so much as a as a non-opinion writer, because of course the, the demand from editors is always to call both sides. So in a very controversial story, you definitely always try to get both sides. Um, you know, I think I was thinking about, for example, um, the, the kneeling at the, at the NF, you know, the NFL kneeling during the Anthem games. And it is a, it is a different world for sports because I feel, I do feel like unlike years, past maybe two decades ago even the average reader is bringing politics into sports and so if you write something they will call you you know either left leaning or right leaning whichever they feel is the case and and you're literally writing a sports story so um even though you have the Jackie Robinsons and all the you know Billy Jean Kings and all these people paving the way um for for social justice and social issues I feel like it's really culminating right now because these athletes now have their own, you know, platform, like LeBron James can go on Twitter and say whatever he likes. And so it's completely changed the landscape of reporting sports. And the reader expects you to take a side. So if you're writing about kneeling about the national anthem or during the national anthem, even though you, you know, are a straight news reporter, they're like, well, why didn't you condemn it? Or, you know, why didn't you applaud it? And, and yep. you're almost, you're not helpless in response, but you're almost like, you can't just spend all day saying, well, that's not my job, but go see Greg Doyle. Right. And I think, yeah. And that's the case where you're also like, even if I could take a, you know, a position, I wouldn't, because I just would not, I just would not even open up that can of worms. I mean, I, I like very much not being a columnist, I, I can't imagine the heartache and turmoil of writing something every day, you know, that's controversial enough that you're, you're really, really getting it from people, you know, James Briggs. I, yeah, I mean, he, he might even have it worse than Greg Doyle. Cause I know people, people just are relentless. Well, but we also, I, I want to say we also love those people. I don't want to, because I love that readers are engaged enough, obviously, that they care what people are writing at the Indianapolis Star. So it's not in any way like 
we don't, you know, I'm not trying to rip on them. I'm just saying it can be tough when you're sitting in the seat of the journalist. Dana, you mentioned that sports has been something you've been interested in your entire life. What is the earliest or first sporting event you remember? Ooh, that's a good question because we did not go. The earliest sporting event is watching my dad play basketball in leagues. Like when I was, it was in the era of the cabbage patch kids, because I remember taking my doll to the game. Um, so I, I remember watching my dad play basketball and softball, but as far as going to an actual sporting event, it was probably early Colts years. I mean, I was in college at Butler and I can remember taking my textbooks to the game. They were that bad. Like I would sit in the stands. We had season tickets, but I would literally study while they play. Uh, and then I did, I do remember my first concert though, veering off. It was Michael Jackson's bad concert at market square arena. Well, remember that. What was your first? My first concert was Van Halen, uh, in, uh, El Paso, Texas. I was stationed in the army, uh, right outside in white sands, missile range, about 50 miles away. So that was the first, that was the first concert that I got to choose. First right. concert. I remember as a kid, starlight musicals, Johnny Mathis. Oh, yes. And he wore a burgundy, um, velvet, velvet burgundy tuxedo that looked like the backseat of a, of a 74 Eldorado. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to yeah. ask you that I'm going to ask you is one of the five questions is what was your first concert? So I'm gonna have to think of another one here before I actually ask them to you. Is oh, there I'm a, sorry, <laughs> no, not at all. Is it, is there a, a sporting event or game in history you wished you would have covered? Can it be like even before I would Any? love to have covered Lou Gehrig's speech about being the luckiest man on the earth. I would have loved to have been there for that. Cause I, I, I was, you know, obviously grew up a huge Yankees fan and I loved that. I also loved, do you remember Brian's song, the movie about yeah. Piccolo? Yeah. That was one of my very favorite movies growing up. And, and that kind of era of, you know, college and, and pro football where um, some of those friendships were formed and, I, I don't know, kind of any, any historical, I don't have one, but definitely Lou Gehrig's speech. And I did get luckily um, to cover a lot with Carl Erskine and his friendship with Jumpin' Johnny Wilson and Anderson, which was completely like unheard of. They were school, you know, schoolboys, Erskine's white, Jumpin' Johnny Wilson's black, and they were best friends. And they did everything together and they played in the wigwam basketball together. And then of course, Erskine went on and and had a went played played with the dot. Was it the L.A. Dodgers? I think he maybe um, started with Brooklyn and ended up in L.A. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so he he continued that um, with you know that that just color. I mean, you don't want to say colorblind, but I mean, he always when I sat down with him, he was just like, I literally just didn't see anything other than myself when I looked at jumping Johnny Wilson he was a kid who liked basketball and so I, I love those kind of historical racial sports stories and how they kind of bring people together unless it's changed and maybe it has because it's been so long but in psychology classes 
for years, it was the movie Brian's song that was shown in class because it was the only movie that would make men cry. <gasps> Are you serious? It was the movie they showed in class in college classes and universities to induce men to tears. That is fabulous. And if you get on YouTube and watch the uh, NFL special on Butkus and Sayers, a football mm -hmm. life, there's a segment in there that actually features Billy D. Williams and the real Gales talking about oh. that movie. You should look at it. It's really, oh, I, really cool. Yep. I'm going to look that up. And I plus, was just thinking the other. Yeah. Plus there's 10 minutes of highlights of Dick Buckus just absolutely putting people in comas, which is always great. <laughs> you were getting ready to say something, Dana, go ahead. No, I was just thinking the other day, I need to pull that movie out again and watch it make my boys watch it. You know, <laughs> it's so incredibly sad. Yeah. Yeah. It is so incredibly sad. And I just remember just crying and thinking if maybe this is what a sports hero is because growing up you know you think the sports heroes are the people that are you know dunking the ball or hitting grand slams and then I that was the first time I actually thought I think sports heroes are something completely different than what they do on the field and so it was like really I just it was a super impactful and I just I just remember renting it at the the Greenfield public library on VHS. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but it was, yeah, it's a great movie. I mentioned a few minutes ago when the podcast started that Hoosiers seemingly have an insatiable appetite for nostalgia. Um, does that help you? A, do you agree with that statement? B, if you do, does that help you as a reporter? Because there's so many stories you can you can pull back, you can talk to, you did that terrific story about Art Schleister and his, his gambling addiction, which is just, just as a human being, you, with a heart, you find just so gut wrenching that this guy struggles uh, yeah. just, a, just a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago, you wrote that story about Ted Kitchell, who I actually know a little bit only because my one, uh, my ex-wife used to be his uh, kid's babysitter. Oh my gosh. And Ted yeah. Kitchell's an incredibly nice man. And so when you, when you go back and you talk to someone and you bring those stories back, Landon Turner, the list goes on and on. Does uh, the fact that Hoosiers just seem to like always want to revel in the past and the good old days, is that helpful to you? Give you more story ideas? Oh, absolutely. There's just, because obviously in these days you can, you can metric, you can look at what people are reading. And besides like Wentz being put on reserve COVID just now, which is going crazy. Um, like those kind of stories do remarkably well. I, one of my best read stories of 2021 was the, the college, uh, he was married, had two children. Um, and he just recently died this year and I got to talk to him months before he died, but Steve Platt, who was like the highest, he still holds a record for most points scored in college in Indiana. And, but he was a 26 year old husband and father and farmer when he did it. So he would literally work on the farm all day, go, you know, to basketball practice and then, you know, come home and take care of his wife and kids. And so he was a grown man, basically, when he when he set the record. And I remember asking him, like, 
because the 3000 point record was getting ready to be broken by Mangus. And I was asking him about it. And, and, uh, he said, uh, that's not comparing apples to apples. You know, he, you know, he has the three point line, he gets to play more games than I did. And so he was still holding on to that record, but <laughs> yeah, any, any of those historical, um, sports stories are just, I like, I just finished one today that we'll be running on Tony Holman Jr. Who was, I had no idea this like standout athlete. Did you know that? Like he would, he was on Yale football's undefeated team in 1923 as a left end. He was named an all American end in high school. He was like the number one pole vaulter and high hurdler in the nation. He was named by like the high school association. And you hear about him as a racing legend and clabber girl and buying up all the business ventures, but I had no idea that he was an athlete in his own right. And so I went through all, you know, I called Yale and got through their archives, which no one had very much because it was 1920. There's, there just wasn't a lot, but huh. I did find enough to write a story. So hopefully people will enjoy that. Is it, how do you, I mentioned uh, Matt Tully earlier and, you know, I haven't had too many run-ins with journalists, but I've had maybe a few. How do you handle, um, and it's funny too, because in, in a lot of the ones that I've had, the reporters at least been kind enough, like Matt and I would have all these, you know, lunches or, or Starbucks or off the record conversations or text exchanges or whatever. But when he needed to talk to me as Matt Tully of the Indianapolis star, he would call me and say, Hey, Robert, it's Matt. I need to talk to you on the record. Like as mm -hmm. soon as, as soon as he said my name, which I always appreciated because then there's no, there's no gray area. And sometimes we would go at it. How do you, as a journalist, you know, you're dealing with a lot of times with extraordinarily wealthy men and women who, who have egos, who are very concerned about their public uh, perception and their brand. And I would imagine uh, they can go all Bill Belichick on you from time to time. <laughs> how do you, how do you handle that? Well, as far as the, on the record, like what you just mentioned, I think that's very much a politics business thing in my, I almost never go off the record with people. It's a very, very rare case just because I just, I've been burned too many times by, and in my fault as well, I don't think it's, it's a gray area. What's background, what's on the record, what's off the record. I mean, I think you have to establish that with people if you're going to do that, because I had a ESPN PR person tell me something on background and what we consider background was not what she considered background. So, um, I try to be really careful with that, especially when you can post news immediately and, and it's up before, you know, in the blink of an eye. And then someone calls you up and says, that's, that was supposed to be whatever off the record or background meant don't use my name or don't use the company name. So, but as far as egos, I mean, it is unreal how down to earth these people, these athletes are. And I am not just saying that. I mean, I covered business for 10 years and the ego of the business CEOs I covered I, they were well, I mean, a lot of them were much higher and much harder to work with than, you know, talking to an elite athlete. Um, 
And I don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, I haven't obviously talked to LeBron James or Steph Curry or super superstars, but you know, Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning. I mean, I was just with Peyton Manning at his bourbon launching and I mean, he's just, they're just very, very nice, like down to earth people. And maybe it's because they make their money doing things with a ball. You know, I mean, it's not like they're, I don't know. Yeah. I've been very lucky. (laughs) Indianapolis has had, I think it's fair to say more than it's fair share of really strong sports journalists um, back to when I was growing up and they were, you know, basically white males and, and that's changed considerably. And we've lost a couple of significant journalists just this year and Bob Jenkins and a former podcast guest, Robin Miller. Are, are you someone who looks, look back the years of, of the star when it was owned by the Pulliams and had the, the great Bill Benner and, and John Banch and Phil Richards and and uh, even even Bob Kravitz, who I just think the world of, if only yeah. because one of our favorite combined favorite movies is Slapshot. So <laughs> whenever I see him, I say Toe Blake, and he always replies, "Old time hockey." And so <laughs> the stars, yeah. the star in the news and in, in this market, Jet Copic. I mean Don Hine. I mean the list goes on on Anthony Calhoun. We could name them all day and night, uh, but. Do you look at them and, and think, wow, you know, they, they've covered some amazing stories. What can I learn from a guy like that? Oh my gosh. Yes. I call Mark Monteith, Bill Benner, used to call Robin Miller. Um, I eat up anything they can tell me. And I, I actually search for their stories in our old newspaper archives to see when I'm writing these kind of stories, what, you know, what they, what their take was. And like I said, my college professor, Debbie Reed was a, a woman sports writer when the Colts came to town. So it's, it's amazing to think that maybe what I'm writing now will someday, some young journalists will look back in the archives, you know, and, and use it. And they are fabulous. And the knowledge, I mean, when Robin Miller died, I, I wrote his obituary and, and I talked to so many people about him and I learned so many things about him. But what's most amazing is the knowledge that we've lost, like really as a city with him being gone, because there is probably no one in Indianapolis who knows more about racing or city, you know, than Robin Miller did. I mean, he just immersed himself in it. And um, it, it is it's just it's kind of a magical thing to come after those people who who were so so great at what they did. And I mean, they really were a lot of old newspapers in the day where you read stuff and you're like, Oh, that was typical writing, you know, who, what, when, where, why, or whatever. Those guys were way ahead of their time because they were putting, you know, colorful, you know, color, adding color to it and making you feel like you were right there with them. Robin Miller's loss is particular because he was such a Homer Southport kid and so self-deprecating great stories. Uh, We just, we interviewed Paul page for the podcast as well. Same thing. You know, there's this, there's this thread, this foundation of, of Hoosierdom for lack of a better term that comes through, I think in some of their writings, there's no bigger Indiana Homer, whether it's the state or the university than Bill Benner. He's at the yeah. top of the top of the top and his brother too. his brother came on the podcast. He was absolutely terrific, but 
one thing that's changed since you've been in journalism, we have a few more minutes with Dana Hunsinger Benbo, the sports writer for the Indianapolis Star, is, is that the presence of female journalists has certainly uh, grown considerably, paved in part by people like Sally Jenkins and uh, Jackie McMullen, who wrote this brilliant book on, on Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And ironically, perhaps that one of the top executives at ESPN is someone named Jill Fredrickson. And I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever heard of her. I uh, wrote a big piece on her. I remember. That's why I was yeah. just getting re- this. This leads into the fact that her locker was two down from me at Thomas Carhow High School. No way. Yeah. So Jill and um, and her uh, brother, Andy, and her sister, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Kristen, were all Eastsiders all went to Howe. So I've known Jill since she was in elementary school. I'd love to have her on the podcast. I'm sure ESPN wouldn't do it, but so proud of her and everything that she's accomplished. But it has changed. And how do you think the change, the proliferation of, of female sports journalists has helped journalism and perhaps even helped sports? I think, well, number one, and I was, I, when you were saying that, I was thinking of Sage Steele too. She's another like oh, home, you know, hometown girl. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think now I'm right now, I'm the only woman on the star sports desk. Um, and it's still, and I don't know, it, it's still um, a rarity when I'm in a press box, most of the print journalists are men. There's very few women writers now down on the sidelines. Um, you know, s- some of the broadcast journalists that I feel like there, there's a lot more women doing that. Um, even maybe more than men now, but I think it's, I think it's helped number one, even the, the athletes themselves, if you're covering men, they're, they're very respectful. They're, they act like, you know, what you're talking about. Even when I started, you know, in business 20 years ago, I felt like I was talked down to about business Mm -hmm. as if I might not understand it. And it may be because I was 20 something and that they were just simply would have done that to anybody young. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a great, it's always better to have more diverse coverage of anything because you get it from every viewpoint and you can look at things in a way that other, you know, maybe a man wouldn't look at, or, you know, that's why it's just great to have so many different people from different backgrounds covering any beat, because that's how you really, you know, tell, tell the whole picture. One of the themes of the podcast is, is we talk a little bit about unsung heroes. You know, we, people don't realize how much X had to do with the success of Y or how much impact this person had. So I'm going to say the name of someone who I think is an unsung hero of this city, not only the sports world as it involves Indianapolis, but the city itself. And if you would, would you please react when I say this name? Yes. Nancy Leonard. I knew you would say that. You're so (laughs) right. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I, oh yes. And I sat down with her after Slick's death and at a bar in Carmel and said, I wanted to tell her story and it is unreal. The impact she had on the Pacers staying here and not leaving for something else when they were in financial turmoil. And just the, I mean, 
pe- people hear the slick name, but and you know this, she she was the one pulling the strings. She was the one he ran everything by Nancy. You know, anything that was going to happen, he ran by Nancy. And she was a general manager, and not just in a term like a sec, not a secretary who ran around. You know making sure the events were scheduled or the travel was, I mean, she was sitting in meetings with presidents of, you know, those ABA teams and NBA teams. And she was like making decisions and they were not backing down. And right now it, it sounds it's 2021 and people may not understand just how amazing that was back in the, you know, late sixties and early seventies to have a woman who was, who was doing that and still so graceful and you know, loving and motherly, but also as everyone I talked to said about her, I mean, she could be very feisty. And yes, I love that you brought her up. She's one of my favorite people in the world. Another interview that I wanted to ask you about very quickly, and we have a couple more minutes before we get to the five questions. One of the five questions will have to be improvised since Dana's has already answered the concert question. <laughs> You just did a terrific piece on a on a former uh, guest on this podcast, and that's Jeff Smolian. Um, talking to him, realizing his role in creating sports talk radio, it was kind of interesting because he realized, and I haven't listened to that interview in a long time, but he was very proud of the accomplishment of of what it meant. But but he also, in my estimation, looking at him, this is pre COVID. We were in the same room there in the Emmis Building. He was almost wincing like, yeah, I know that there it, it can be a problem because people get so uh, hyped up about their sports teams. But what did you learn about Jeff Smolian when you when you interviewed him and his impact? Wow, I learned. Well, I covered him. This is in the early 2000s when I was on the business desk, I covered MS Communications. So I covered him as the CEO of MS and he was on the board of finish line. So he was at their board meetings and I covered him in that aspect. And then all these years later, I went in as a sports writer and, and looked at him from that side. And, um, just his, you know, he said that when he came up with the idea of sports talk radio, it was in college. And he just remember sitting in class thinking, Hey, it'd be cool if like there was a radio station that just talked about sports. And, and then when he brought it to his people at MS, they like told him it was the worst idea they'd ever heard. <laughs> And they I love it. it down. They voted it down. And then, you know, eventually one of them said, well, we're doing good. I think it was Rick Cummings told him we're doing well. So listen, we'll let you have this one. We can try it. Well, within 18 months, once they brought Don Imason, it was taking off. And then they bought, you know, then they were in New York, the land of the Mets. And, and of course it was just everybody there ate it up. And so, um, I learned that he is one of the most down to earth, almost doesn't even know his own, either he's a really good actor or he really doesn't get the impact he's had on, you know, radio and sports and, and just even Indianapolis. So I was going to make that point too, that he was, you know, his, to make another East side Irvington, how high school connection, his business partner, Jim Riggs, Dr. Jim Riggs. His daughter, uh, Dina, was in my class at Howe. So I grew up knowing about Emmis and Casey and all that sort of stuff, but I had no frame of reference, right? Like all I knew were the stickers that were on her folders, right? I didn't know what any of it meant. 
And it was through that connection that I got to know uh, Jeff a little bit and then kind of through politics and, and government working for the mayor or the governor or whatever, uh, because Jeff Smolian is one of those guys like a Mac Browning, like a Mark Miles, like a Jim Dora senior or a Jim Dora junior, Jim Morris, who says politics be damned. We want yeah. to build this city. Yeah. And thank God for people, men and women like him, Bill Mays, Yvonne Shaheen, the list goes on yeah. and on, right? Who say, look, okay, this is going to make, you know, yeah, Bill Hudnett will probably get reelected because we're going to build a stadium and, you know, with no team and then the Colts coming. <laughs> all right. But like, we don't care. Like that's, that's what I got out of it is, is yeah. how down to earth he is uh, and how much he cares about the city. And sometimes you just wondered, like, does this happen in other places? Does this happen in Nashville or Chicago or St. Louis? Because it sure does seem like it happens a lot here in, in Indianapolis. Sports there people, is, business people yeah. coming together. Go ahead. No, there is something special about Indy because I've covered, you know, the the Super Bowl being here and then making a bid for, you know, the All-Star game was supposed to be here. I followed them to Chicago last year to see what the All-Star game there was like so that, you know, how they were preparing to hold it here although it got moved obviously because of COVID, but I mean, meeting all those people and it, I, everywhere I go, the people that are there, like in Chicago, were like these people from Indy, these business leaders and these sports leaders, they really don't care about each other's, you know, they don't care. They want the other person to be a success, even if they're running Lucas oil stadium and versus Gamebridge Fieldhouse. the people that run both of those want the other, you know, it's, it is, I feel like just because I've been in it 20 years and covered it from the business and sports mm -hmm. side, I think there is something special in Indianapolis about the people that are making, and that's why it's been successful. If you could choose one word to describe Dan Dockage, which word would you choose? Oh. Well, you know, he hates me, so I don't even know. Um, I don't know. I can't. I don't know. Just say hater. Yeah, he does not like me. Um, <laughs> I would say maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of one. But uh, yeah, he's he's uh, he mentions me every day on his show and what a terrible, unethical journalist I am. And it's very and that's that's one on Twitter that I definitely don't respond to. But um, I can't even think of a word for him. <laughs> <laughs> we have reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Uh, our guest today is Dana Hunsinger Benbow, who is a writer for the Indianapolis star, and she is single-handedly responsible for bringing the Chick-fil-A to the Gangbridge Fieldhouse. <laughs> yes. So, we love you for that, for sure. First, first question. What was your first job? I was a McDonald's cashier. Am I supposed to expand or just answer? No, that's good enough. And Greenfield? Okay. Yes. And my no. uncle um, was part owner. And so I always had to clean the restrooms and it was nepotism in reverse. Like he made me do the bad stuff. <laughs> oh, my uncle lives at the corner, basically not the corner, but very close to uh, the intersection of nine and 52. So I've eaten in that Greenfield McDonald's many, many, many times. <laughs> You've answered the question. Second question, which is what was your first 
concert, and that was Michael Jackson during the Bad Tour, which is a pretty damn good first concert, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> let me substitute one. If you could have interviewed any sports figure in history, whom would you choose? <gasps> um, probably Casey Jones from the Celtics. I loved his quiet demeanor and how successful he was, and I would have loved to have talked to him and how sad it was in the way that he retired. The year he retired was the one year the Celtics didn't win the championship in the sixties. Yeah. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Um, I should have studied these. Uh, if it's not Gus, the glorious goat, when it comes out, <laughs> I would say, I love the fault in our stars. I know it's so cliche, but I listened to it the whole way to Florida when I covered Jason Sadie and I, the John green, I just think it's got so many life lessons in it. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Does not have to be a sporting event. Okay. Martin Luther King. I have a dream. That's a popular choice, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Yes. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, not named Dan Dockage, <laughs> two hours off the record, just to chat anyone in the world, whom would you choose living today? Living today. I, I want to say vanilla ice, but that sounds so cheesy. <laughs> But I love Vanilla Ice. I would love to sit down with Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Barack Obama, yeah, Paul answer. McCartney, Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I'm sticking with Vanilla Ice. I'm sticking with Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Definitely a first. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Dana Hunsinger Benbow, a sports writer for the Indianapolis Star and, in my mind, the premier sports journalist in this market. And if you've listened to this podcast, You'll understand why, because people want to talk to her. They want to tell her their stories. Dana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. And send this to Vanilla Ice just in case he's listening and he'll give me two hours. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.